Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. We thank you for the fact that as we sing, O come, Emmanuel, Emmanuel has come. And that we look forward to his return one day. We, we just sang that by your word, you will dispel our darkness. And we pray that you would do that in us today. As we look to your word now, speak to us, convict us, encourage us with who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Has your phone ever alerted you of an imminent danger with an emergency alert? Maybe your weather app has warned you of a severe thunderstorm, a flash freeze, an ice storm. Maybe you got a snowfall warning today, maybe, or even a tornado warning sometime. Something that has gotten you to, to take shelter or to stay home. Or over the last couple of years, you've likely been made aware of someone else's danger at times, getting a blaringly allowed amber alert, maybe even the middle of the night. We may find that annoying or pointless, but if it were our child in danger, well. Or perhaps think of Canada's COVID alert app, which is supposed to tell us if we've potentially been exposed to someone who is sick recently. Here's another question for you. Has your Bible ever alerted you of imminent danger before? Or if it has, have we even noticed? Has it caused us to take action to find safety? I believe what we're going to read today should function as the equivalent of an emergency alert from Scripture. Like we should hear an alarm sound, a siren, or in this case, some trumpets. And we need to pay attention because it may very well be you in the storm's path today. I invite you to see this with me if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. We've taken some detours away from Revelation the last few weeks. Today is actually the only week in November we're going to be in this book. So I'm going to try to make up for that by covering a lot of ground. We're going to try to get through a large portion today. All right? So we're starting in Revelation 8. But in recent chapters, we've seen some majestic scenes of God's throne room. As Jesus, the Lion of Judah and the Lamb who was slain, took the scroll of God's plan and began opening up the seven seals, holding it shut. In chapter 6, we saw how him doing this sparked God's wrath, his just wrath on the earth, culminating in this cataclysmic day of the Lord at the end of time. Chapter 7 gave us an interlude of sorts, describing the multitude of God's people in glory. And then, as we come to chapter 8, it brings us back to the opening of the final of the seven seals. However, 
That doesn't necessarily mean that this is a chronological progression of passages or scenes. Like That's not really how apocalyptic literature works, like Revelation is. Uh, we don't tend to have many styles of literature or art these days that are similar to this. Uh, a possible parallel would be a TV show that covers a huge span of time. Maybe you think of something like This Is Us that has lots of flashbacks and flash-forwards and re repetition and overlap. Like Revelation has all that, plus an enormous amount of symbolism and imagery mixed in. I believe that chapter 8, likely, despite describing the seventh scroll, likely begins a new scene, which contains quite a bit of what scholars would call recapitulation. That's a big word. That mainly just means it's a cycle of some sort. So it may describe some of the same judgments of God that we've already seen, but it does so in a different way, from different angles or a different perspective. All right, without further ado, look at verse 1 with me, which is a stunning change of pace from what comes before. It says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, if you recall, heaven was full of thunderous splendor. Myriads of angels shouting, countless saints praying and singing, and all of a sudden there's total silence. Heaven falls quiet. Now, most believe that this is a dramatic pause here. It's a hushed expectancy. It's meant to heighten our anticipation for what comes next. I think it also adds an ominous tone to the text because it echoes a number of prophecies actually that talk about falling silent when the Lord comes to judge such as Zechariah 2.13 says, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Whatever the exact case here, this moment was the cue for certain angels. Look at verse 2. It said, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, these chapters contain what are known as the trumpet judgments. But before the trumpets are blown, before judgment comes, something important happens. Look with me. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. There is hardly a place in the Bible that reveals a more powerful picture of prayer than this. I think that the main thrust of this passage is really that the world needs to be warned about God's judgment. But the first few verses put an interesting spin on that main point. 
The earth needs to be warned because prayers are going to be answered. The earth needs to be warned because God's people's prayers will be answered. That's your first point for you. It will be on the screen. Now, why would I say the earth needs to be warned? Two reasons. Like, why else would John write this prophecy or be given this vision in the first place if it wasn't to warn anyone who hears it of this happening? This is coming. Also, the fact that these judgments are announced with trumpet blasts. Trumpets were instruments most often used to make proclamations or sound alarms, especially in apocalyptic literature. Like in Joel chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the earth tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. And indeed, it appears that it's prayer that's the spark that ignites God's wrath here. Look again at verse 3. Another angel came, stood at the altar of the golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So this angel's given, it says, much incense to burn on the altar of heaven, but it's mixed together with the prayers of all the saints which would seem to include your prayers and my prayers, all the saints. And as this mixture burns, the sweet-smelling smoke rises before God. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't hear prayers until it's delivered to him in this manner. This is imagery, right? It's a picture of, of how prayer moves God to action. Shows many things about prayer. Shows prayer is sacrificial, being offered on an altar to him. Shows prayer is pleasant to him. It's as if the fragrance of incense lifts it to God. And this shows that prayer is powerful. Kicking off God's judgment on earth. And it's no coincidence that the angel uses the same censer or incense burner that sent prayers up to God to hurl down the initial burst of judgment on the earth. On God's orders, of course, he does this. Verse 5, then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Do you get it? Like, this and what follows is in answer to an accumulation of prayer. And again, we get this sense of impending doom. like Thunder, rumblings, lightning flashing, a storm is approaching. The earth begins to shake. Have you ever seen a threatening, dangerous storm move towards you in the sky? I have. It's fascinating to watch, but you don't want to be caught outside in it. What this vision tells us is that there is a storm on its way to earth. And we shouldn't want anyone to be caught outside in it. We need shelter from it. 
Are we warning people of the danger they're in? Do we care? At the same time, do you realize that every time we pray for God's kingdom to come, your kingdom come, we pray for this storm of judgment to come as that ushers in the glory of the kingdom. Or every time we pray, how long, O Lord? Or come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask for this. And those are good things to pray for and long for. Like, that shouldn't stop us praying. In fact, it should motivate us to pray all the more. There is an answer coming to our prayers. But if you are not one of God's people, this power of prayer should actually alarm you. Right? Like, if millions of people are just mouthing prayers to an empty sky, then prayer is meaningless. And you can justifiably ignore it, dismiss it, not worry a lick about it. But if there is an almighty God on the other end of those billions of prayers... If he really does hear and really does care about his people's cries, prayer isn't something that we usually see as scary. Maybe it should be. Like in some mysterious way, it unleashes the power of God in judgment on evil. Like prayer moves the hand of God. Prayer matters. And if you think about it, it's really an unstoppable power that God has given to his people. Like they can cut out our tongues. We can pray in our hearts. They can kill us. And only inspires more prayer from everyone around us. Believer, like be encouraged. An unbeliever, be forewarned. Thomas Torrance, after talking about how powerful evil, evil can sometimes seem, says this, But what are the real master powers behind the world? Here is the astonishing answer. The prayer of the saints and the fire of God. That means that more potent, more powerful than all the dark and mighty powers let loose in the world, more powerful than anything else is the power of prayer set ablaze by the fire of God and cast upon the earth. The prayers of the saints and the fire of God move the whole course of the world. They are the most potent, the most disturbing, the most revolutionary, the most terrifying powers that the world knows. If, if only we in the church grasp that true power of prayer. Yet sometimes we feel no desire to pray. We usually sense no urgency to pray. Many of us even feel like we have no time to pray. If there's anything that's more important or urgent or helpful or powerful than this. So pray. Keep on praying. Don't, don't give up. Don't assume that God doesn't hear you. Like some of you are going through really hard stuff right now. Pray. Some of you are doing great right now. 
And so you don't feel the need as much. Pray anyway. And we have no idea just how much we need it, nor how much God can do through it and will do through it. So pray. All right, continuing on. Let's see more of what prayer unleashes here. Verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Before we run through these trumpet blasts, we likely wonder when all this takes place. And there are, of course, many different beliefs and opinions here. Just about everything in Revelation has many different beliefs and opinions. So we must not be dogmatic on this. I believe that this describes a time of intense suffering before Jesus returns. However, at the same time, I think God's judgment is also playing out across history. Much as with the seven seals that we saw, there is a sense in which the seven trumpets are being blown even now. And every time we hear even just the faint echoes of their approach, it should warn us anew. Why? Here's why. The earth needs to be warned because destruction is coming for wickedness. The earth needs to be warned because destruction is, in fact, coming for wickedness. All right, the first four trumpets bring destruction on the natural world. The, the created order is hit hard. Look at the first, verse 7. Now the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now you're going to notice that fraction a lot here, that one-third. Lots of things get destroyed, but it's only, almost always one-third of it. As we've seen in Revelation, numbers in this book are not mathematically literal. The numbers are often part of the symbolism. They're trying to tell us something. And what these one-thirds tell us is that judgment is terrible, but it's not total, at least yet. Like here, God is still holding back, restraining the full force of his anger. Like in reality, 100%, three-thirds of the world should be destroyed for our pervasive wickedness. So one-third is actually a symbol of God's mercy. His forbearance. Still, his wrath is something to be feared. Hail, fire, blood, these are common symbols of judgment. As we'll see, the trumpet judgments often echo the great plagues that God sent on Egypt back in Exodus. In this case, it sounds a lot like the seventh plague of hail and fire. And the effect on the world's vegetation is devastating here. I don't know if you've ever seen the charred earth after a wildfire sweeps through. Having grown up in California, I saw this quite often. Maybe you've seen it on the news out in the, the West Coast or in Australia earlier this year. None of us have ever seen anything like what John envisions here. Like picture 
a third of the Amazon rainforest burning down, or the Canadian Shield. Imagine all the firefighters in the world trying to fight this everywhere. It's alarming. All along here, though, don't miss the implication with all these judgments that God takes evil and sin very seriously. And God is not indifferent to what we do, what goes on in the world. He cares. For some, that's the best news ever. But for many others, it will be the worst. And he cares about what goes on. Verse 8, second angel blew his trumpet. Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And I wonder, is that an asteroid, a comet, maybe an actual burning mountain, a volcano? We don't know. John didn't either. He said it was something like this. Anyway, this recalls the first plague in Egypt when the Nile and all water sources in Egypt turned to blood. And in John's day, given the Rome's heavy dependence on the sea trade, the, the sea lanes were called the lifeblood of Rome. This would have seemed an especially potent plague to John's hearers. Third, the fresh water joins the sea. Verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters become wormwood, became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Again, is that an asteroid? Don't know. Whatever it is, it poisons the water, like its namesake, Wormwood. If you don't know, Wormwood is the name of a bitter-tasting shrub that was used in medicine. Its taste is so powerful that one ounce can be tasted in over 225 kilos of water. Anyway, the point is that this falling star poisons the rivers and springs. So many people die. And this too resembles the first plague in Egypt but also recalls another occasion in Israel's history. In Exodus 15, they found water in the desert at Marah, but it was undrinkably bitter. So Moses threw wood in the water and turned it miraculously sweet for all to drink. Here in Revelation, we essentially have a reversal of the miracle at Marah. One more thing to notice here. Look at the final verse in chapter 7. You can see it there, where the Lamb guides his people to springs of what? Living water. This is the deadly opposite. Fourth trumpet, verse 12-fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night you remember the plague of darkness in Egypt 
the ninth plague. Here that goes global. Causing complete darkness for big chunks of the day. Now, if this was strictly literal, the sun, a third of the sun was struck, it would cause mass extinction. <laughs> this is symbolic. Whatever it describes, it is a blackout of cosmic proportions. In Mark 13, Jesus foretold that the powers in the heavens, sun, moon, stars, would be shaken before his return. Now at this point, the whole created order has been shaken. While God sits unshaken on his throne. So David Platt concludes here, do not put your ultimate hope in created things. All things, even the most secure things like the light of the sun, all things in heaven and on earth are passing away. And these four trumpets judgments together, Grant Osborne says, prove that those who live only for this world have chosen foolishly, for only in God is their true life. Earthly things turn on us, and we dare not depend on them. And if you're listening in, and you are putting great hope in your health, or your success, or your finances, or your job, or your security, or your comfort here and now, take heed to this. Here at the end of chapter 8, we hear an additional alarm sounding, an ominous alarm. It says, then I looked in verse 13, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. In the Roman Empire, eagles were often seen as messengers of the gods harbingers of doom or judgment. And here, John sees one streaking across the sky, but also crying out in human speech, Whoa! 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 Well, woe was a sorrowful announcement of disaster. Who is being warned here? Says those who dwell on the earth. That phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is actually a, a technical term in Revelation used many times to describe those who stand opposed to God and his coming kingdom. It wasn't woe upon everyone on the earth, as we're going to see. It's woe to those who are in rebellion against God and his ways. Woe to those who are at home in this present world fixated on the things of it. Danny Aiken says, these are persons who live not only on the earth, but for the earth. And if that can describe you at all, hear the eagle crying out here, whoa, whoa, whoa. And why? Because even more judgment is coming. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. If the first four trumpets impact the natural world, trumpets five and six are quite supernatural. 
Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now that's very possibly a reference to Satan, the star fallen from heaven, or at least one of his main servants. But what does he do? Verse 2, he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. Now, if you remember, the eighth plague in Egypt was a devastating plague of locusts. And Joel prophesies about a locust invasion also coming before the day of the Lord. But in Revelation, these locusts aren't like other locusts, harming plants. Look at verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. So the locusts are seeking out people to harm. And, as, and they'd be as painful as scorpions. Like murder hornets aren't going to have anything on these nightmarish creatures. Look at verse 7. It says, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the no noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their Tales. Now, we don't know how much of this to take literally, as there is a ton of symbolism here, like representing power, organization, intelligence, cruelty, and terror. What we do know is that these aren't actual literal locusts. These are demonic beings from the abyss. And we know that this judgment is going to be horrible to experience. Torment is the word Used. There's going to be so much pain with no relief to be found, even in death. Look back at verse 6. We skipped it. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. People will prefer death to suffering. But in some way, people won't be allowed to die here. Like, Think of it. Usually people flee from death but can't escape. Here they run to death. Can't be found. Finally, last thing here, these demonic hordes have a leader. Verse 11. They have a king, or as king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. That name in both languages means destroyer. Now, whether this is Satan or someone else, it means destruction is coming for people. Some think this could be an actual dig at the Roman god Apollo, whose name is related to Apollyon. Like he was the god of 
pestilence and plague, and the locust was actually one of his symbols. So it could be. But I want us to look beyond the grotesque details here, beyond the, the speculation that we might have about this, see a few key takeaways here. First of all, God is using wicked beings here to judge wickedness. Like demons are doing God's work. He doesn't need to tell them to do anything. He just allows them to torment people. Destroying humanity, God's highest creation is all demons' number one goal. They have a passion to hate and to harm people, even their own followers. But God has kept evil restrained, not allowing them to carry out their full evil yet. And one of the primary ways in Scripture that we see that God judges evil is by simply not restraining it anymore. Second, do you notice that they were only permitted to wreak havoc on the earth for five months? Even if five months seems really long, it's still a limited time. This is not eternal torment yet, which is what every human actually and truly deserves for our evil. God is not just allowing people to be tortured for the heck of it. No way. As Daryl Johnson says, God is seeking repentance. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. The worst thing is living unrepentant, missing out on life with the living God. So death is kept at bay, making more opportunity for repentance. This is sheer grace. And on that note, did you see in verse 4 who would be kept safe from this plague? They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Who has the seal of God on their foreheads? Chapter 7 told us, right? God's chosen people. The seal on their foreheads represented his possession, his protection of them. Really, it's everyone who has been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb, as it says. I hope you get the picture today more than anything else that one, we deserve God's wrath and two, that we desperately need to find protection from his judgment. We need shelter. Now see, there is refuge and safety available to any of us in Jesus Christ. Because Christ took our wickedness on himself, our sin on himself, and he died for it. Now we can be washed clean, and he can seal us and protect us forever. Like those who are sealed in his name will never face the wrath and judgment of God. If we could, if we could, it would mean that Jesus' death didn't actually work. That he failed, but he didn't. And he rose. Like his cross, we know, saves us from earthly, eschatological, and eternal wrath. So, have you been washed by the blood of Jesus and sealed by his Holy Spirit? 
And please hear me today that this destruction is coming for the wicked in some way, shape, or form. But you can be saved from it all even today by submitting your heart to Jesus' reign. So call on him today. Call on his name. Stop trying to get by on your own. He's your only hope. Hear the trumpets of woe sounding the alarm. Verse 12, it says, The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Keep going. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And we don't know who these four angels are, why they're imprisoned. It's believed that they come from the Euphrates River because for the Roman Empire, that represented their far eastern border from where they always feared invasions coming. And so this is a location that's symbolic of foreign invasion. In this case, a demonic foreign invasion, and an invasion led by these four angels and prepared for a precise time and precise purpose. It says, so, for the, four, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Again, they only march forth when God gives the order to release them. He's still sovereign. He's still in control, even when all hell breaks loose on earth. Some of us might balk at that. How could God allow billions of people to die? Really, what we should be asking is how could humanity so relentlessly and unremorsefully turn their back on their loving creator, their very source of life? How could we? Like, if the wages of sin is death, we believe the wages of sin is death it means that we are choosing death for ourselves every single day God is not forcing death on anyone this judgment is again God allowing wickedness to run its full course ending in destruction and so here 200 million demonic horsemen are let loose and they are the stuff of nightmares too Verse 17, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur come out of their mouths. By these three plagues, the third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. <laughs> they got horse bodies, fire-breathing lion faces, venomous snake tails. They damage and destroy from both ends. One scholar says the picture 
is meant to be inconceivable, horrifying, and even revolting. And here's why. This is meant to expose the horrors of evil. It's meant to show up any false god out there as frauds and fiends, not friends. When we center our lives around anything other than the one true God, it will destroy us. There is real evil in the world, and it's not out to help you, to harm you. I've been enjoying reading The Lord of the Rings lately with my boys, rereading for me. And one thing that struck me this time around has been the way that one of the heroes, Gandalf, was received in various locations he traveled to. See, Gandalf was aware of great evils in the world, and he felt the need to warn people of the danger and mobilize them to respond. But what that meant is that he earned a reputation of being a bearer of bad news. Everywhere he went, like one person called him a, a herald of woe, gave him the nickname Gandalf Stormcrow. But when you see the bigger picture as the reader, when you see what's actually going on, you can see that the warnings were justified. You can see that sometimes bringing a woe is necessary to save from evil. And that's what I think John is doing here in Revelation. Like, it's okay if you see this as distressing. Sin should distress us. The woes are warranted. And sometimes we need to hear bad news in order to shake us from our stupor and save us from disaster. Tragically, this passage in Revelation ends without any such response. You'd think, or at least hope, that people would fall to their knees and beg God for mercy here. But it appears that no one listens to the warnings of the trumpets. Verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Isn't that sad? But today, like, this is not necessarily the case for us today. It's not a tragedy yet because we're not there yet. See, the earth needs to be warned because the time to repent is now. The earth needs to be warned because the time to repent is now, not later. These verses give us an urgent plea to not put off repentance. One day it will be too late. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their work in their hands. They did not give up their idolatry, their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. As the message paraphrases, they went on their merry way, didn't change their way of life. There wasn't a sign of a change of heart. They plunged right on. 
Even after all these people had seen and experienced and suffered, they wouldn't turn to God. Even with the world collapsing in catastrophe, all their earthly hopes are crushed. Even with supernatural torment and death all around, their hopes in life itself gone. They refused to repent. They still wanted their sin that was destroying them more than they wanted God who wanted to bless them eternally. crazy. That's what sin does. It makes us illogical, blinded, and even crazy. You see this all the time. People willingly choosing paths of destruction. We know sin will destroy our relationships our families, our marriages, our reputations. We know that getting into relationships with certain people will end in disaster. We know that immorality will lead to guilt, shame, and sorrow. And we say, so what? We know that idolatry, say, of of money, will never fulfill us. And we pursue it anyway. We know there's going to be consequences. We know we can't get away with sin forever. But we go right on lying and stealing and raging and hating and lusting and indulging because in the moment, the fleeting pleasures of sin seem way better than whatever God is offering us. It's insanity. However, It's not too late to repent today. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We can look at this, these verses, see all kinds of sins that we're guilty of ourselves. And some of us are plunging right on, going on our merry ways, willfully oblivious to the destruction we're headed for but we can see the mercy of God for us today. Most vividly in the cross of Christ, and we can choose to bend the knee, confess, turn from our wicked ways, and be washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Like That's what it means to repent. To, to turn around, to turn from sin and turn to God. I hope you'll do that today. We, We'd love to help you if you need to, to discuss this or pray about this, whether it's for the first time ever or the thousandth time. And if you already have, I hope that you're moved today to see the urgency of warning those around us who are in very real danger. Like if there was a, a tornado roaring up Main Street and there was someone walking along the sidewalk, back turned to it, not even realizing the peril they're in, Any of us with a heart would try desperately to get their attention and get them to safety. Maybe we don't really believe something worse than that is coming. But it is. Even the current suffering and hardships in our communities are trying to warn us. 
As Daryl Johnson concludes, he says, the harsh realities of history sound the alarm that something is wrong and we had better get it right. The harsh realities of history sound the alarm that you're going down the wrong road and you had better turn around. Can you hear it? It's being screamed from every corner of the globe. Something is wrong. Something is off. You're ignoring me in my ways. You're headed for destruction. Turn around. Wherever God's spirit has moved in your heart today, whatever issue he's pointed to, I hope that you can hear the trumpet sounding. I hope you can choose to turn around now. His prayer is going to be answered. And destruction is going to come for the wicked. But today, the day that is mercifully the day of salvation. You're listening. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, please move in our hearts by the power of your Spirit. Show us where we've gone astray and call us back to yourself. I pray this for us as individuals. I pray this for us as a church. I pray that you would break our hearts for those in our city and our families that don't see this, don't see the danger, and help us to open our mouths. In Jesus' name, amen.